on those headphones. It's time for Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine. Welcome to Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine, the podcast that explores all things kinky in a sexy and inclusive way. This show is intended for mature audiences aged 18 and up, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We believe in risk-aware consensual kink here on the show, so if you do try things mentioned on the show at home, know that neither the show nor the cast are responsible for any accidents, injuries, legal or property damages that may occur while getting your kink on. Welcome to Naughty Talk, Season 3, Episode 5. I'm Sunny, she, her, and I'm here with Sarah without an H, she, her. Sarah is an educator, dancer, and performer that I had the pleasure of meeting for the first time at KinkyCon 2022, where she was offering some super fun pole classes and also demoing for an electroplay class that I attended. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to do my very first podcast with you. I'm excited too. I'm so happy to have you. So usually I like to start off the show by asking folks to tell us a little bit about themselves in terms of their roles and identities within the kink community and go ahead and just introduce yourself. Great. I'm Sarah Thedonich. I do teach at a couple conferences. Uh, the ones that I've primarily been doing are Tethered Together and KinkyCon, where, as you mentioned, where we met. I also co-produce a quarterly kinky burlesque show in the Philadelphia area that's called Safe Word. Um, it's great fun. It, we do some kinky stuff. We do some really silly stuff, uh, and it always sells out, so it's been really great that. And I teach a pole fitness for Awakenings, which is also in the Philadelphia area. Excellent. Um, so... Usually when we're talking about a specific subject, and we're going to talk a little bit about dance today, I like to ask people to start out with telling us why they love it so much. Why is it so amazing? For me, movement is like very healing. And it's something that's always been a part of my life. I danced since I was young, all the way through school and whatnot. Um, I tried out martial arts for a little while, and that didn't quite feel like the right fit for me. And then I ended up at an open house at a gym. I took my first pole class and immediately I was like, this is the thing that I've been looking for. It, to me, it feels like flying. It, I love spinning in the air and flying. It's also why I really like rope. Um, I love exploring rope as an aerial person and what I can do moving around until my rope top takes away ways for me to move around. So just it just makes me feel connected to my body and relaxing kind of out of your brain, I guess, like getting out of your head and into your body. For sure. I've had a, a pretty similar journey, actually. I probably put on my, my first pair of ballet shoes when I was three. Uh -huh. And I danced for performance and competitively up through college and um, danced as part of a dance company when I was in college. And then my body kind of broke down on me a little bit because yep. ballet will do that to you. And, yep. and that's one thing I'm glad I didn't end up actually doing ballet. I did mostly like jazz. I did modern. I didn't do so I think I maybe got a little bit lighter on the <laughs> body toll on that. I don't know. I mean, I, it's all it's all rough on the body potentially. You know, I did a, a mix of different types of dance, but that was sort of like the primary thing. And then, mm -hmm. you know, I got to a certain point and my body was kind of like, we're not doing this anymore. And I started doing a lot of yoga mm -hmm. and other types of, you know, 
um, like aerobic fitness. I tried like cardio kickboxing, all kinds of other things. And I was just miserable. I was like, I really want to dance. I miss dancing. And then I stumbled into a pole studio and I'm like, I love sexy, you know, art of all kinds. And I love to dance. And this is just for me. Agreed. I love that you can use like so many different genres of music. You can tell stories. It can be emotional. It doesn't always have to be sexy and with heels on, but it can be because that's also really fun. So being able to express all the different sides of it and parts of it is amazing. And since we are a kink education podcast, I wanted to ask how dance and kink might overlap for you personally um, or at a professional level. So I think sometimes when we think of dance just in general, you kind of think of partner dance, which that in itself has this power exchange paradynamic of the leader and follower. And I guess you can almost think of that with pole and aerial dance where the pole is your partner and you're kind of learning to dance with this new dance partner that also you might get bruises from or it might hurt. And like, that's a thing in kink that we often enjoy, right? This pain pleasure dynamic. Uh, So I think there's that side of it. You can also do things where you're doing things double so just like as in like acro, like partner acro, where you have like a base and a flyer, you could do some things like that on pole. So there are these kind of like parts of it that mentally and physically overlap with what kink can be, where there's this power exchange, where there's physical sensations happening in the body. It can be very focused where you're kind of dropping away out of the rest of the world and you're really just here in the now, which I think is a great way for a lot of people to experience kink, kind of dropping away from the rest of the world and being very present. That's a great point. It's kind of funny because like thinking back to when I was dancing in a studio, I think about like pole kisses and the bruises and everybody Mm -hmm. showing off their bruises. And it was a very vanilla environment, believe it or not. And, you know, here I am the kinky one in the group. And I was pretty close with most of the people I was dancing with at the time. And I'm pretty sure the only kinky person in the group. And everybody's like, look at these bruises. It's awesome. And I'm thinking, you know, I can I can see the overlap there. But, you know, also, I find that being a dominant and loving movement, I like to mix those things together. It's so empowering to be the person dancing. And I think that there could be sort of a misconception that the person who is watching the show is in control of the situation. But I like yeah, to disagree I there. Yeah, the <laughs> I agree. The person dancing definitely, I mean, like, if especially, let's say we're taking a performance, you know, that is you taking them, you know, I'm here to be present. I'm here to show you what I want to show you. All of that, you know, plays into that part of it. You know, we talk a lot on the show about how there is no specific act with kink or with sex that defines a side of the slash. And it's about the power and the energy that you put into it. And I definitely think that that's the case with dance. And I have been mixing dance with hypnosis for some time now and have even taught a class on, I think I called it sensual dance for trance or sensual movement for trance, something like that. And it was like pulling teeth (laughs) to get people to participate because everyone was afraid that they were going to have to dance. Um, Even though I promised that that was not the case. It was a choose your own adventure situation. You could participate, you could watch, but you know, I made sure to include demos where the the top of the scene was the dancer and demos where the top was the person observing. So you could totally switch it up there. But personally, I definitely feel like within myself that being the dancer is the more powerful position. 
I agree. I personally am a switch. So, and I love giving lap dance. I think that's like a, a really fun way to connect with partners and, or if you get to do it for money, that's great too. Um, but in that situation, you have the person who's receiving the lap dance ideally is not moving. So they're in this way bound that they're, you know, and you are doing the movement on them. I think the flip side of that is doing it for them, like for their pleasure or for their enjoyment for you almost to be like this object for your enjoyment if you're a kink person who enjoys that kind of objectification. So I think both sides of that, I kind of resonate with both. This idea of I have my heels on, which makes me feel tall, makes me feel powerful. I'm wearing clothing that tends to make me feel powerful. But also I want to do it for your pleasure and be a thing of beauty to be enjoyed. Trying to get people sometimes to participate in one of my classes, The one of the easiest ways I do this, I usually just break them into groups of t- two groups so that it's half and half. So that way no one has to feel like, oh my God, all eyes are on me where they're in a group, say there's, you know, three or eight or 10 people all doing it together, but there's still an audience. So you kind of get to play into both sides and you get to try both roles. I love all eyes on me. I'm such an exhibitionist. I'm like, I am like, yeah, that is a place where it overlaps with kink for sure. You know, voyeurism, exhibitionism, if you're into that sort of thing, And I love your comment about the chair because I'm always saying, like, if you tell somebody, like, sit in that chair and don't move, that's bondage. It is. is. 100%. 100%. So, I mean, we've touched a little bit on studios and sort of having a place where people can go and they can learn to do this type of dancing. And I've really observed this sort of phenomenon over the past decade, but like especially the past five or six years, where something that was not mainstream has become mainstream. Now it's like in very vanilla type fitness environments. There's um, petitioning going on for pole sport to become an Olympic sport, and it's already an international sport. Mm-hmm. Do you want to just talk a little bit about sort of like the evolution um, of dance becoming mainstream? Yep. I started pole in 2008. So I've been at it for a while. And the first time of the, my studio started in a squash club and we were up on like one side of the gym and the restrooms were on the other side of the gym. And the club had a huge issue with us going right into the restroom in what we wore for pole. Now this is, we are a fitness studio. We have very few classes where we even wear heels. And if you were wearing heels, you're not going to run across the entire gym wearing your eight inch heels. So this is like wearing shorts in a sports bra or whatever people might be wearing for pole. And they would just nag on us about us being like so uncovered, which to me I find ridiculous because if you go to the beach, bikinis tend to be way less covered than what we're wearing. Yes. <laughs> so I'm like, where are you even coming at? Like, there's no argument that I can even see that makes sense from that. But it definitely, we definitely have grown over time, you know, even within the educational side of pole, like naming conventions and things are being more consistent. Cause in the beginning you'd be like, well, I call it this and I call it that. And there, that still does exist, but we're definitely seeing things kind of even out. I mean, at the end of the day, in terms of pole being in gymnastics or in the Olympics, I, it's like a vertical pole, right? So we have the uneven bars, the parallel bars, you got a vertical bar, you know, the backgrounds of pole come from a lot of different places. Part of it comes from clubs and the very sensual, sexy side of it. Part of it comes from things like Chinese pole, which has been going on, which is not sexual or sensi- sexy per se. And it's primarily men doing gymnastics. So we have a lot of different routes to kind of respect and, you know, take into account for where we are today. But I definitely feel like it is, you know, we have movies where we got 
J-Lo doing pole. Obviously, that inspired a whole lot of people to come, let's try pole and see what this is like. One of the things I love about pole is seeing my students, their confidence just increases from that connection back to their bodies. Especially as adults, we don't get a lot of time, as you said, to like kind of show off and be proud of something that we can do and share it with other adults. And this is definitely a thing that allows you to be able to do that if that is a thing you want to explore. And I personally, I love bringing it back to a sexy place for all of the athleticism and, you know, gymnastics and the fun, fancy tricks. You know, I, I really love the sensual, sexy aspect of it. And I learned to dance in a studio that really embraced that. It also had a lot of like chair dance. It had burlesque, everything kind of rolled into one. And so I really appreciated that it didn't lose the roots of where it came from. And my pole mama, I won't name her because I didn't ask permission, but um, was, is, is still. Um, My pole mama is an incredible person. And she really worked so hard to help people appreciate their own bodies and yes. be connected to their bodies and to be connected to sensual movement. She used to do the sensual movement workshop once a year where there was sort of minimal dance at the end, but we would do things like drink wine and eat chocolate. And she would talk about, you know, the five senses. Absolutely. And then, you know, when people were kind of lubricating a little bit, she would talk about like, pretend to, you're putting on lotion for yourself and you're yes. putting lotion on your body and now you're like making it a show for somebody you know for a partner who maybe catches you in the act of applying lotion <laughs> i'm 100 that instructor that's like touch your body it's your body like i probably say that in every one of my classes yes that same idea of putting on the lotion touch your body and yep. make it be performative yep and i i don't teach pole dancing specifically, I'm not certified, but I do often teach on incorporating sensual movement into kink. And so the class that I teach is not like a pole fitness class where we're talking about like safety and the technicality of using a pole. Um, It's very much focused on moving your body in a sensual way and like lots of little things that you can pull in, you know, like teasing and um, like little peekaboo moments and, you know, things that anybody can do without a pole just by sort of embracing their body and how you can move in a more fluid and sexy and sensual way and then adding trance. So absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. My favorite class to teach is floor work. I love rolling around the floor. That is definitely one of the things that got me through the pandemic was being able to like roll around on the floor because yeah, you don't need any equipment for that. And in terms of like the teasing part of it, you can do that with a hoodie, right? You don't need a fancy rhinestone burlesque costume. It's fun to have that, but you can do all of that in a hoodie or in something in a bathrobe. Or naked. (laughs) Right, right. Well, and then that tease of getting too naked or what's under Mm -hmm. there. Is there going to be more? Is there going to be three bathrobes? Like, what does that look like? (laughs) I do this demo with a towel. I'm like, so, you know, usually I'll be mostly clothed when I'm teaching. (laughs) And um, 
<laughs> well, it depends on what we're teaching. But right, um, right. in this particular case, you know, I was like mostly clothed and, you know, we did some striptease kind of stuff. And I did this thing. I'm like, okay, here's a bath towel. <laughs> now, now we're getting out of the shower. And, right. you know, we're just like having a moment, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And during the I didn't do a ton of virtual performances over the pandemic, but I did a couple and I was in a couple shows. And that was there was 100% people who did shower burlesque, bathtub burlesque, on a bed burlesque. I mean, we were exploring what we could explore in a time where we couldn't go out and do things on a stage and how we can make those spaces be sexy and, you know, have a whole show with it. I can't believe I'm forgetting this dancer's name. You probably know it. It's driving me nuts that I can't remember, but I got to see Zumanity and it was incredible. And I think about Felix Kane. Yes. That's who it is. And yes. I think about this performance and the dance is sort of a scene where the dancer's partner is like watching, I think, football on TV. And the dance is like basically taking place in a living room and it's like stealing the attention back and, you know, stealing the sexual energy back and involves pole and other types of dance. And yeah, that's definitely something that inspired me when I was starting on my pole journey. And mm -hmm. Felix was no longer with the show when I got to see it, but it was still really incredible. Absolutely. And yeah. Yeah. It was just awesome. And seeing that sort of sexy dance, sensual movement being pulled into um, such a mainstream sort of performance mm -hmm. was really cool. Right. I mean, anytime you talk about aerials, I feel like that's where a lot of people's minds go to is, oh, like Cirque. And I'm like, yes. And it's great that Cirque also has pole in it, not just silks and hoop and the more traditional aerial things, but that full gamut of it. Mm -hmm. Now, when we think about something like, you know, Cirque, are you thinking about like incredibly talented and, you know, flexible and mm -hmm. fit athletes and performers, so I think people think about that and they think I have to have a certain level of athleticism or a certain body type to get into dance, which I personally believe is wrong. I agree. I agree. I, I can just tell people it's not I can't. It's just not yet because everyone's journey with pole is a little bit different. If mm -hmm. you're, however you're learning pole, some things may come easy. Some things might come harder. Everything might come harder. Everyone's kind of on a different journey. It's not necessarily like hey, I'm in a spin class or hey, I'm in a yoga class and we're all kind of accessible to the same things. It's, it's going to be a while and it can take years. I kind of compare it to martial arts where, you know, you're testing to go up from the ranks from white belt to black belt. It's kind of that same idea. It, it is definitely a journey. It's going to be an interesting journey for your body. Yeah, there's always going to be someone who's more bendy than you, but just getting to enjoy that journey as it goes is very important. And when I think about the sort of sensuality of dance and the benefits that you can get from it, you really don't need to do, it's fun. And of course, it's awesome when you achieve something like that, but you don't really need to do like tons of incredible fancy inversions and other things to have a sexy dance. You can do it completely on the floor, yep, you know, on a, chair. Alcohol, on a chair, um, you know, so that's something that I always like to talk about. You know, I'm a person who has a neurological condition that causes weakness on one side of my body on a periodic basis. And I have had times where I'm frustrated because I will like work myself up to peak fitness and I'm doing all the fun stuff. And then, you know, I have just a couple of weeks off and that's all it takes. And I feel like I've lost all of my physical strength. I have to start from the floor literally again from the ground up. But 
you know, most of the time when I'm dancing for a partner and it's really sexy or sensual or like I'm being a little bit of an exhibitionist because I'm in a king club that's put up a pole because yay. Yep. If it's there, I'm probably on it. Same. Same. In that kind of setting, I'm probably not doing super fancy tricks. I'm just doing sensual movement. And that's something that anybody can embrace at any ability level or any size. Absolutely. The floor is for everyone. Uh, my floor work class, I, the warm up of it has us facing where we start. We're face down. We go to face down the side. We go to face up. So no matter where you are on the floor, something hopefully is accessible to you in a way. And then again, coming back to put your hands on your body and touch your body. It makes any movement sensual. It doesn't matter what the movement is. And honestly, you know, the people that I danced with had such a range of bodies and abilities. And one of the things that I observed was that some of the people who were physically the strongest were maybe not the most flexible or the person who could like hold some really fancy pose might be really, you know, stiff in their movement and somebody who could do, you know, less of that was very sensual. So it's not always about the strength. Right. It can even be that break away from ballet because that is also another kind of body type, but very structured and trying Mm -hmm. to find the looseness kind of, I always call it like the very gushy movements, the movements that extend all the way out, feeling that energy come all the way out through your fingertips, through your toes, through your chest, through your head, really letting that extension happen. Yeah. So dance can be for everyone. Um, we're in agreement. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and where can people who want to learn get started? Learning pole is a lot. Everyone learns a little bit different. So I wouldn't suggest you know, kind of finding the best way for you. I obviously I teach in a studio. So I, and I learned myself in a studio that worked really well for me. And that's one of the best ways I think there can be to learn wherever you go in a studio. Um, there are certifications for pole. So if you're learning from someone, they should be certified to be teaching you what you're learning. Um, but that's not to say there are not other ways to do it. There are people who are self-taught people who learn by what, you know, online and watching videos and things that way. Um, I would say at this point, because we've gotten more mainstream with pole, you know, we see a lot more of it and you might see, you know, these phenomenal things that make it look so easy and it is not easy. And I would say it's unrealistic to expect to be going upside down and inverting in the beginning, maybe even weeks in or months in to the beginning, depending what your background is. So I think having those realistic expectations, being realistic with your body, not over training, but, you know, kind of listening to your body's journey. And like you said, going from the ground up is a great way to start because there's a lot of movement that we start grounded and then we take it to standing and then we take it to up in the air on the pole. And dancing on the floor is super sexy. So it it's is, not like, it yeah, it's not like if you're you're doing floor work, it's not hot or it's not fun. You know, I think sometimes it's the most fun. It hurts the least right. amount. <laughs> Right. And I think it's great because then too, not only it gives your audience something more to look at, you know, if you're just pull, 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 that's boring. Right. So being able to have those transitions up and down is wonderful. And, you know, I would throw in there, if you are going to attempt some of these fancier and more difficult moves, just understand that there is a degree of strength and skill and learning involved, like doing any kind of kink skill. We talk about that all the time, you know, so learn from somebody who knows what they're doing. Yep. Get educated, have a mentor, have a spotter. I mean, and a lot of times I think part of the reason I think in classroom training is some of the best is because your instructor can give you those little tweaks that can make all the difference that if you're watching it, you may not actually know what's happening 
with some of those more advanced techniques. Or just move your body. Like if you're slightly misaligned and that tiny like micro adjustment is what's going to make the difference. Sometimes just having somebody like push your foot one inch to the right, you know, that can be the type of thing they can see from the outside what you're doing. Right. So do it safely um, in a risk, do it in a risk aware (laughs) way. I never say safe. It's all risk mitigation. It's a fitness activity, you know. My my pole mama would not allow us to do mats or any kind of crash pad because... I, okay, so I'm going to agree <laughs> that I, I actually had this. I taught last night. One of my students was like, I'm working on this. She's like, can I get one of the mats out? And I was like, well, what are you working on? And she told me it's a move where your hands are actually on the floor, but it's a way of dismounting. And I was like, honestly, this particular move is really difficult to do on a mat because the mat makes the handstand part really wobbly. It mm-hmm. actually makes it harder. I was like, look, we'll practice it. I'll spot you. And I can spot you really heavy. So I really got you in this until you feel good about it. But I do agree. I think mats sometimes give this like false sense of protection that mm-hmm. if you need a mat, it makes me question whether this is the right skill or maybe we need to see a couple steps back and see what are some of the steps up leading up to that skill and maybe some of those we need to focus on a little bit more before we actually get to the skill because i i do see that people come in right away want to learn how to do shoulder mount want to learn how to do handspring and those are two that are, can be injury prone if your body's not ready for it she used to say that if you were having a healthy fear of falling and breaking your neck it would make you think twice about doing something that you weren't quite ready for yet without a spot or just letting go and letting yourself flop because the mat would catch you and she didn't want anybody to train themselves to like just to give up and let go and right. let themselves fall because then yep. when you don't have the mat if your body's then used what? to doing that it's no good mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> but um, lots of places to learn, you know, a quick Google search will turn up something in your area where you live most likely. And, you know, that's where you get started. And then once you get going, things like performances happen sometimes or sexy kinky fun with dance. Do you want to talk a little bit about your show? Absolutely. And when you said performances, I'm going to back to studio life for, for a quick second that we also do student showcases. So even if you are a beginner, You'll be, if you're interested in performing, there'll be a space for that. Um, I do think performance, it's very exciting. It can be some, even if you're doing like a one song, so it's maybe three or four minutes, it can be a very exhilarating three, four minutes. Um, and sometimes a lot of people say it's over so fast, and it is. It's a lot mm-hmm. of work leading up to this very special moment. The show that I do is called Safe Word. I co-produce it with my bestie, Honey Tree Evil Eye. This show started... We're in our second year and we're a quarterly show. So there was an opening at a venue and we were like, let's throw this out there and see. And this is coming kind of out of the pandemic. And I was really debating how much I wanted to get back into performing. And I'm so glad that this show happened because from the beginning, it was definitely what both of us needed in our lives um, to just be able to explore what is kink and open other people up to kink and do some kinky things that I think right now within burlesque and even within the wider dance community, there is kind of Ooh, what happens if I play with a flogger or, you know, we kind of see these little hints of kink sometime, even within fashion, but this show really, you know, we've done sharps on stage. We've had fire, we've had electric, we've had wax, you know, we've had people on leashes, we've had people getting floggings, like all of that is regular nonsense for our show. In the last show, I, so just in the last fall, I bought a flying pole. It's a pole that hangs from the ceiling. It's not attached at the bottom. So is it a pole? Yes, but it moves like an aerial piece of equipment. 
Um, and I was like, let's see what happens. And it's kind of a conundrum trying to learn it because the pole spins around you rather than you spinning around it. So it's kind of been this puzzle trying to unwind that. But I just did a performance on it. I'm like, all right, so how can I make pole be kinky for this show? And a couple months back, I was at a dungeon. I was wearing a tail butt plug. And I was like, oh, what'll happen if I do pole with a butt plug in? I've never done that before. And it was totally fine. Super comfortable. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, great. Uh, now this is the thing I know I can do. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do flying pole and I'm going to be my uh, furry persona is a woofy. So I have like a woofy hood. I have a woofy tail. So I was like, all right, I'm going to be a wolf and I'm going to do pole. What better song to do this to than She Wolf by Shakira? So we're just going to make this really silly and campy. So I started as the fancy office lady wearing a blazer and a skirt. I have my mug that says I just survived another meeting that could have been an email. And I proceeded to burlesque out of all that. And I put on my woofy hood. I got my woofy tail in there and flew around <laughs> on my flying pole. I got the whole crowd to a woo with me at the end. So, uh, yeah, that's some kind of the silly, kinky, burly performance stuff that you'll see in Safe Word. That sounds like quite a moment. See, now all you need is like a mix of like a hypnotism act and a... <laughs> Right, <laughs> yes. and I, yeah, let me know when you're doing this class again because I would be interested. I think I have a friend who is probably also interested as well. I would love to hear some more about that. I want to run it again, and I, I did it virtually, and that had its benefits because people who wanted to dance along could turn their camera off and no one right. could see them. I mean, if you wanted, you know, put that in for KinkyCon, and you could just put the lights down. That's true. Or you, I mean, that's you could true. have everyone be blindfolded because within the vibe self, that's also a very sensual thing, depending on how big your space is. You want people to run into each other, but there's options to make that be live. Like that would. Oh, yeah, we for both sure. Be up back at KinkyCon, I'll teach some, pole, <laughs> some hypnosis, trance dance, and we'll do all the fun things. Yeah, that was really a fun event. I really enjoyed teaching at it. And, um, it was kind of like my first big event of any kind in person post pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of a moment. I was like, I'm leaving my house. I'm doing my thing in right. person with actual other humans. Right. It was very exciting to be. The yeah. Nothing replicates that energy <laughs> in person, in person, in a dungeon, in Durson on a dance floor, you know, in a concert, all of that. Yeah, it was a good time. I mean, I had not had like in-person dungeon time for a long time. And I've done some other in-person events since then. And I, I just missed it so much. So hopefully they'll have me back. <laughs> I don't Absolutely. know. You never know. It's, a, you know. You know, the talent pool is high. I, I agree. But <laughs> I think both of what we teach are very niche things and things that are, are interesting. They're kind of not the things that you see every day or not everyone maybe has access to every day. You know, hopefully someone takes a class like that and then they're curious to explore more. Well, I hope that we have sparked a little bit of interest in dancing. I know dancing is sort of like a scary thing uh, for a lot of folks. And they have sort of like an involuntary like reaction where they think back to like some traumatic moment in life where dance was involved. But it can also be so wonderful and empowering. And I think everybody should dance. But Right. And this is like the overlap with kink, right? That scare, excitement, anxiety, anticipation. It can be some of that mixed in. So yeah, definitely overlaps. And I agree. I try it, let go, just see what happens. And hopefully some of our listeners will check out your show too. 
Yes, that will be great. Yeah. Uh, we, like I said, we are quarterly. I don't have the date of the next one yet because we literally just did it this past Sunday. Um, but it'll be, I imagine, sometime in the summertime and get those tickets early because it sells out every time. And where can people get tickets to your show? You can follow me on the socials. I am Sarah without an H, the whole thing spelled out. That's W I T H O U T A N H on Facebook. On Instagram, it's the reverse, without an H, Sarah. Um, and on FET, if you're on the kinky of Facebooks, it is the Sarah Hless. So all versions of Sarah without an H, it's for and I'll put um, whenever I have gigs coming up, shows coming up where you can catch me, it'll be on those. Well, thank you for having this talk with me. I loved having you on the show, and hopefully you come back in the future. Great. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. Yay! <laughs> With that hypnotic music, I can only imagine it's time for Hypno Story. I'm here with Hypno Story. They, them, how are you today? I am great. And by the way, if that sounds like a change to some of our listeners, it's because it is uh, that I've been thinking about gender stuff for a while and they, them seems to be what fits now. So that's what I'm doing. Excellent. Well, we are very happy to have you back on the show as always. And I'm really excited because we are going to be talking about one of my very favorite topics, erotic hypnosis. Absolutely. I just wish I could remember what we were supposed to talk about. (laughs) And I was, you know, even having a difficult time remembering which episode this was. Maybe it's because we are going to be talking today about amnesia. Yeah, so hypnotic amnesia is a a really fun thing to play with, and it's also one that kind of spooks a lot of people, because the idea of forgetting things seems scary, like, could somebody take my memories away? And it's worth knowing that hypnotic amnesia is really not forgetting in the normal sense, that when we forget something, really forget it, you know, or have like amnesia from a traumatic event, you know, from a head injury or something like that. Often those memories are really completely inaccessible and gone. And whether they're gone because the record is no longer there in the brain or because the brain doesn't know how to access them anymore We actually don't know, and it may be different in different cases, but really, I think it's way more useful to think of hypnotic amnesia in a completely different way because it is a completely different thing. What it really is, is the unconscious mind hiding a memory from the conscious mind. Now, do we really have a provable thing called an unconscious mind? No. Probably not. But is that a useful metaphor? Yeah. And and it's one that I use a lot. And I think that that's the best way to think about hypnotic amnesia is that the, um, the hypnotist is essentially creating an alliance with the hypnotist's unconscious mind to create this fun experience. But like all hypnosis, it's happening 
in the brain of the person who's being hypnotized. And so agency is still a thing, right? And unconscious agency is also still a thing. So one of the ways I tend to frame it with people, if I'm doing hypnotic amnesia with them for the first time, is that if they ever really needed to know something that they had forgotten through hypnotic amnesia, that their unconscious would just give that memory back because it's the unconscious that's doing the hiding. And therefore, the unconscious can give it back at any time. Right. And, you know, I have a brain in particular that has not so far done hypnotic amnesia very well. And I know within myself, it's because I don't really want to forget things most of the time. I'm very much a detail-oriented kind of control freak. And, you know, I, I think it's definitely something that is going to be like with any hypnotic skill easier for some than others. And for me, it's really been a challenge, but we tried it recently. Mm -hmm. And I basically said, there are lots of fun things that you can do with this that I want to have the capacity to do. So let's work on it a little bit. And, you know, mostly I've seen the, the fun and enjoyed the fun too, you know, being on the other side of things as the hypnotist, but kind of been a little bit jealous that my brain won't do some of those fun things or that it hasn't done them yet. And so we worked at it and I couldn't get all the way there, but I think you had, was it like a pickle? I think it was a pickle or mm-hmm. like a cucumber or something in a plastic bag. And all we were trying to do was get me to forget, you know, on a time limited basis, what that vegetable technically a fruit, whatever, (laughs) what it was called. And it really felt like I was looking at the thing. I was looking at the cucumber and I knew what it was. And I knew that I knew what it was, but it was just like stuck on the tip of my tongue. Like, you know, I had to go through a list in my mind. Like, is it a pickle? You know, is it whatever? This like list of other similar vegetation. And eventually I was able to zero in on it with some effort, but it was that feeling Mm -hmm. of it. Like it's there. I know, I know this, this information, I have this information, but it's just sort of like tucked away where I can't immediately get at it. That's a super, super useful way to think about it too, because often that concept of it's like, it's on the tip of your tongue is something that is really helpful for people in experiencing hypnotic amnesia for the first time. And as you say, this is one of those things, like a lot of stuff in hypnosis, that is really easy and natural for lots of people and really takes quite a bit of work to develop the skill for other folks. And um, I don't have a great like idea of why that is, but it's just one of those things that is just like, you know, some people can do visual or kinesthetic hallucinations really easily and others can't. Some people do amnesia really easily and others not so much. 
And even you were mentioning in some cases spontaneously. Oh yeah. Um, that there are some people who will under some conditions experience spontaneous amnesia. Often that's associated with what we might call deep trance, although depth is a metaphor, but I have had a play partner who was a play partner for quite a long time who just every time she came out of trance, if she hadn't been given a suggestion that she would remember that she would automatically forget. And I don't know if that's something that was innate in her. She had played with a a number of very skilled hypnotists for a long time before we met. And so, you know, I don't know if 10 years before when she had started playing with HypnoKink, if that was an expectation that may have been intentionally or unintentionally created by the way a particular hypnotist did things, or if it was just kind of part of how her brain works and, um, you know, that that is a thing. And I've known that there are some other people who do it. And it's one of the reasons that I habitually, and this is something I picked up from Wise Guy, f- who started doing it for the same reason, um, I tend to, as I'm bringing someone out of trance, unless I'm intending for there to be amnesia, or want to at least leave a door open for amnesia, I tend to give them the suggestion as a part of the emerging that they're going to remember everything that happened in the session clearly and completely easily and effortlessly. And that I just sort of make that language a part of what I typically do when I bring people out of trance, because I don't want to necessarily pre, I don't want to have people start expecting spontaneous amnesia, because if they expect it, then their unconscious may create it. But I can talk in my pre-talk about how you know, it's very natural to remember everything that happens in trance because that is the experience that most people have. And then reinforce that with a suggestion when I'm bringing them out of trance the first few times uh, for somebody who's new. Um, And then usually it's not a problem. However, if you're playing with somebody who does have spontaneous amnesia, don't panic. Like, it's not an indication that something's wrong. It is a thing that can happen. And in the vast majority of cases, if you give the person clear suggestions that they're going to remember, that they'll just remember right then. You know, you can, you can either do with waking trance or drop them back down and say, okay, I'm going to bring you out of trance now on the count of three. And when I do, you're going to remember everything that happened in that previous trance clearly and completely, easily and effortlessly. That's the language I tend to use, although, you know, it's not magic words, whatever you want to do to convey that concept uh, and bring the person back out of trance. You know, I think that actually happened to me one time. (laughs) And it was a super weird experience because my brain normally does not do amnesia easily. And for whatever reason, I think my brain just chose it. So I had this experience. I was having a scene with Mac and I really wanted the thing we had negotiated to happen. 
And it was almost like my brain was skipping to the good part. <laughs> uh-huh. And I want to say it was like something we had done a lot of times before. I think it was the chocolate frosting orgasm thing. And I knew that there was like dessert in the refrigerator and that that could be an option. And that was something that we had talked about bringing into our scene. And so I had this odd experience of I was given the dessert and the thing happened and that was expected. And I knew because we had done it so many times before, like I logically knew in my mind that I had been handed this chocolate frosting and that it was triggering an orgasm and that daddy was to blame. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I knew exactly what had happened, but I could not for the life of me remember him giving me those suggestions. Yeah, that's really fun. Yeah, he said, you know, I really clearly, he did not give me any suggestions for amnesia, to be clear. So that's why I say it was sort of spontaneous. He gave the suggestions about, you know, the frosting having that particular effect. And that was the one little piece that I could not remember. And it was almost like my brain just skipped over that part to the, now I'm holding a cupcake and having an orgasm. Uh Uh-huh. That's really fun. Yeah, that, and that's a thing that can happen. You know, brains are weird and do weird things and um, unexpected things, particularly if your unconscious is feeling playful and you're doing something with somebody that you have the kind of deep, so deep and trusting relationship and connection that you and Mac have, um, that that can really help. You know, that... For people who want to experience hypnotic amnesia, if it's not something your brain does easily, it may not be a great thing to do as pickup play, you know, because you need to really feel comfortable with the person that you're doing this with. Because when you forget something that you know you should quote unquote remember, that can be quite a vulnerable experience. Now, if you're the kind of person who's comfortable feeling somewhat vulnerable in pickup play and maybe even likes that, then doing amnesia with somebody who's a skilled hypnotic amnesia top in a pickup play situation may be fine. I'm not saying it's not okay to do it, but one of the things that tends to be most effective is if you have an extended trusting relationship and really have built a lot of rapport with uh, the person you're doing it with. Yeah, I think I have to ask myself, like the question that I would ask myself personally is, do I trust as a human this other person enough that if something were to poof from my memory that they could fill in the blanks and I could take their word for it. That would be my own personal measure. And I can tell you that the list is very, very small. Mm -hmm. Because maybe that means I'm not a trusting person, but that list is very small. You know, I felt comfortable. I trusted you. We've known each other for a very, very long time. And, you know, you taught me how to trance. And there are not, you know, a lot of other people that I trust enough as a human to like hypnosis aside to fill me in on something that I couldn't remember and take their word for it, but also to feel like, you know, you had the skill to help me 
recall if I wanted to work at that a little bit. And also understanding that it's about risk mitigation and that might not always be a 100% possible thing. And in Mac's case, my brain chose my own adventure. I chose like, you know, some part of my brain chose to forget all on its own without a suggestion because I was already in a scene with somebody who, you know, I trusted enough to forget for a little bit so I could get to the good part. Mm -hmm. The other way that that can happen, by the way, is really to me, not hypnotic amnesia. And that is if you're distracted while you're being given the suggestion. So let's say your conscious mind is really focused on something Mm -hmm. in the way that, you know, when you're, when somebody's really involved in a book, you might, you know, somebody might be calling their name from, you know, six feet away and then don't hear it. Right. That, that kind of level of focus can happen in hypnosis. And if what you're focused on is not what the hypnotist is saying, but the unconscious is still taking their suggestions in, then it may be that there's no conscious memory there because it was never encoded. I think we talked about that when it happened to me because I was a little bit weirded out. I was like, this thing happened <laughs> to my brain. Yeah. Um, and we talked about that as a possibility. Maybe I, I did not consciously actually hear him give that suggestion. Mm-hmm. and But I kind of knew because we had pre-discussed the scene what was going to happen. So it worked anyway. And it seemed like I forgot when really I never like took it in to begin with. Yeah. That's definitely possible. That stuff. And, and, you know, it's all of this is very squishy. You know, memory is very malleable to begin with. And so, you know, one of the things I suggest to people is to be really aware of, well, what are we playing with, with amnesia, uh, particularly early on, that feels like things that are really safe? How do we put boundaries around it? And in general, my experience is the better contained and bound it is, the better it tends to work because your mind is more comfortable doing it. And so all of the sort of normal ways of putting boundaries around things like only during this scene or only while we're in this room. And if you walk through the door of this room, you'll remember everything I've told you to forget during this scene or, you know, until this timer goes off or any of those kinds of things. In addition to, you know, when I tell you to remember it or, or whatever that, that those are all good risk mitigation things, but they also tend to make it more likely to work reliably because we're creating a container that is a sandbox that the unconscious is comfortable playing in. And then starting with something that is something the person's okay with forgetting. Like I didn't care about that cucumber. I was like, okay, like I cannot remember what this vegetable is called. I'll probably look silly at some point, but it is not the end of my existence. <laughs> but for instance, um, there's a 
the Dave Elman induction is one that a lot of people teach, not so much in the hypnokink world, but in the in the hypnotherapy world, it's taught a lot, and and it's fine. Um, it's kind of an interesting induction, but it ends with having the person counting backwards from a hundred with the idea that they're going to lose the numbers. They're going to forget the numbers. They're, they're going to relax the numbers out of their head is often the language that's used. And if you're doing that with an accountant, the likelihood that that's going to work is relatively small compared to if you're doing it with somebody who identifies as a painter for whom numbers are not particularly important, right? Somebody who identifies as a numbers person is going to have a much harder time losing the numbers. If you're going to do it with them, use letters. Or if, you know, if you're working with somebody who is a professional copy editor and makes their living from making sure the right letters are in the right places, then use numbers. DJ Pynchon and Leah Lore wrote a wonderful book called Hypnotic Amnesia, uh, which you can get on Amazon. And it's a series of, of experiments that they did where they would try different ways where Lee, who is an incredibly skilled hypnotist. And by the way, if you read carefully, the book is verbatim transcripts of the sessions. It is an absolute masterclass in hypnotic language, although it's not explained necessarily, but there's a lot you can learn from just seeing how Lee structures stuff. But that aside, one of the experiments, Lee tried to make Pinch forget who he voted for in the last election, and it didn't work. And one of the things they talked about in debriefing that is Lee didn't know that that election was actually really important to him and that like he worked as a volunteer on the campaign of the person he voted for. And so it's not surprising that his brain didn't want to let go of that. Sure. There's a class that we teach that's about playing with sort of Harry Potter style magic uh, using hypnosis, like that sort of sword and sorcery spell casting magic. And, and it's not set in the Harry Potter world and nor do I support JK Rowling and her incredibly problematic beliefs. Uh, But that just sort of as a shorthand for the sort of style of what we're doing, that was one of the classes I've taught the longest And um, when I developed it with my friend Calamity Brain, we wrote a demo that the class started with where Calamity would forget that they knew me at all. And and then when Yoshi and I started dating and Yoshi was going to demo bottom for me, we started going over, you know, going over the classes we were going to teach and negotiating the demos. And Yoshi immediately was like, yeah, I can't do that. Because you're too important a part of my life. If you, you know, if you tell me to forget that I know you, either it's not going to work or I'm going to have an immediate panic attack because something that's too important 
in my life would suddenly be gone. And so this is why negotiation right. is important, right? And so we rewrote the demo in a way that we could get to where we needed to go without Yoshi having to forget that he knew me, that we just had him forget some things about the context of a story that we're weaving as a part of the class. And that was no problem and worked great. Now, we've kind of touched on... And of course, this is, as always on Naughty Talk, it's not really a how-to, but we touched a little bit on ways that you can negotiate, some types of boundaries that you can include to sort of mitigate risk. But I want to address the big fear that a lot of people have, the sort of terrible, awful, you know, can it be permanent or long-lasting? And how, if so, could something like that come to be? Yeah, so... I think the risk is pretty low. I would never say never. But what I will say is that in general, my experience is that hypnotic amnesia tends to be fairly fleeting for most people if you are not doing something specifically to make it long-term that often... I, f I find often even things that were intended to stay hidden because it's, you know, a setup for a scene a week later or something. Don't that the amnesia is very solid while we're together doing it, but that then the next day they'll say, oh, yeah, by the way, I remembered that stuff. And so I've just kind of come to expect that that's more likely than not, you know, in a kind of conditioning situation, either consensual or, um, or potentially abusive where somebody's being really manipulative over a long period of time, might long-term amnesia be possible to create with the right person under the right circumstances yeah, I, I guess it, I, I'm not certainly not going to, if somebody came to me and said that happened, I would certainly not disbelieve them. I would absolutely believe them, but I think it would be a pretty difficult thing to do because remember, you're not actually forgetting the thing, right? The, that what's happening is the unconscious is hiding the thing from the conscious mind. And particularly the way I tend to do it is I tend to really reinforce that with the people that I'm doing amnesia play with and really encourage them to know that if it was ever necessary or appropriate for them to remember the thing, that of course their unconscious would give it back. And that, just like any other suggestion, they can use agency and end amnesia. Now, if you don't know you've forgotten something, you may not know that it's an option to end an amnesia suggestion, but you can also just sort of use imagery or, or intention to end all amnesia suggestions and sort of 
you know, wipe all of that clean or open all of the boxes or whatever. Um, I will say most people find that some kind of metaphor for amnesia is really helpful. Are we taking the memory and putting it in a box? Are we hiding it? you know, hiding pieces of it in a fairy forest. It's, you know, there, is it, you know, that there's layers of mist that are hiding it. You know, these are all examples that uh, I've had people use. And often finding the right metaphor is really helpful for making it work. But that also means that if you know that the way your brain does amnesia is that you lock it in a box, well, then you can go open the box. And, you know, when I was kind of new to hypnosis, I had a lot of worries about things kind of going wrong, even with good intent. And so I definitely approached it cautiously. I'm sure you remember. Oh, yeah. You know, one of the things that I chose to do, you know, now I I really trust my agency. When I was new, I wasn't so sure. I like I needed some kind of a safeguard. And so I actually worked on conditioning myself to create a trigger within myself that I would anytime I had a sip of water, like plain water, it would wash away any recent hypnotic suggestions. And then I would bring a water bottle to my sessions. And as part of coming, you know, down from it, I would hydrate. And I basically built that into myself that I have this aftercare ritual that I do for myself that's self-contained that wipes away suggestions. And it made me feel in the beginning, you know, I don't really feel like I need to do this anymore because I I trust my sort of inherent agency or this agency that I've worked on and built. But it made me feel more confident that I had built a trigger within within myself that I didn't have to rely on someone else to give things back or wipe things away that I could do it myself. Absolutely. And, you know, I've said this on the show before and anybody who's heard me teach has heard me talk about this, that I really encourage people to practice using their agency and to create situations, whether it's with a hypnotist that you like working with, or whether it's with files on your own, where you practice accepting a suggestion, feeling the suggestion have an effect on you, and then canceling it. So that you develop that skill, you build that muscle so that then if it's ever important to be able to cancel that suggestion for whatever, that you can do it easily and automatically because you've done it so many times that it's just not a big deal. So, you know, that's just, a general good practice. And it's something that I would want people to be pretty comfortable doing before they start playing with amnesia Mm -hmm. in general, you know, like it's, I, I would say that for most people, amnesia is a little more advanced kind of play and, you know, and it depends on what you're doing, right? Some of the sort of classic stage hypnosis amnesia tricks where, you know, you have somebody forget the number four. So it's as if there's no number between 
three and five, and then you have them count their fingers and they count to six fingers and they're really confused. Pretty, pretty harmless. And it's something that'll work for a lot of people pretty quickly if it's done with a lot of confidence and delivered with some skill, you know, and that sort of thing doesn't really bother me, but getting into some of the bigger amnesia things like how did I get here? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Which is super fun. It can be super fun and like a capture fantasy kind of scene, but is that Probably. Yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Or, you know, um, at the end of the amnesia class that Panda and I teach, the demo we usually end with is basically forgetting everything that Panda comes out of trance having forgotten who it is, where it is, how it got there, that sort of all that's left is its basic instinctual sense of how the world works so that it knows that that's wrong. And obviously, that's a big fear play scene. Mm -hmm. And it's an extreme kind of use of hypnotic amnesia. But in the context of our relationship, that's a way that we like to play. And so we like to do that as a way of just sort of showing people, okay, well, if you get good at this and you work with it and you build the rapport and the trust and you take it as far as it can go, you know, what might as far as it can go look like? And on the lighter end, you know, it seems to me that my partner snapped their fingers and now by magic I am naked because I don't remember having taken off all of my own clothes. You know, there there are a lot of places you can go with it and adjacent things. I mean, we could talk about it for hours. It can be so fun, but also a little bit more skill, a little bit more risk. So, <laughs> and, and, But there are also lots of silly little things that you can do. Like, um, one time I had someone forget what an orange is called. And it was just really funny that even though they knew that the object was orange in color, they just could not remember what the name of this fruit (laughs) was, you know, so that, that to not feel like it's got to be this big edge play kind of thing. It can be, it can be really fun and playful. And the way I use amnesia more than anything is having people forget suggestions. Like I'm really into playing with things in ways that feel like magic. And if I wanted to feel like magic, one of the best ways to do that is kind of to hide the hypnosis, right? So if I have them forget that I put them in trance and that I set up a trigger that, you know, I don't know, when I pull their earlobes, they're going to orgasm, that then that becomes a much more magical experience when I pull their earlobe and all of a sudden that's the most erotic thing they've ever felt. And obviously you can use it for lots of things that aren't sexual. It's just that's the, the thing that happened to pop into my mind. That, but to use it to create a sense of surprise. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And, you know, it's really fun when you've done a scene before and it was really awesome 
you can use hypnotic amnesia to allow the subject to feel like it's brand new, like it's happening for the first time so that they can enjoy something again, like it's brand new. And so that can be a really fun way. Mm-hmm. I, I will say, remember that memory is very plastic. And so, you know, I do know people who have done things like used hypnotic amnesia to have their first date multiple times. And the thing I'll say is the likelihood of that getting scrambled up with the memories of the real first date in a way that you may never be able to tease them apart fully uh, is definitely there. Because, you know, what we know from the science of memory is that every time we remember something, it actually gets written back. It gets overwritten in the process of remembering it. And so every time we remember something, the memory gets less and less accurate. It's more generations away from the original. So now if we're messing with that in relationship to an alternate version of it, they may really get mixed together. Now, if you're okay with that, that's not a problem. But I, what I've suggested to people who want to do that kind of play is either do it around something that is a, is a really different scenario, right? So it's not your first date. It's some other situation and or really journal about it and write down in as much detail as you can everything that you can remember before you do it about the real situation so that at least you have a record that you know is from your own perspective um, if you do choose to go into that kind of riskier play. Totally fair. And before I forget, before it completely slips my mind, like I'm being cute and making little hypno jokes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just, I want to thank you for talking about this topic with me. It is something that I think is both really fun and has a lot of applications and something that can be really scary. Like the idea of forgetting something that is important to you, or even for some people forgetting something very small and insignificant, that can be something that is really scary. So I'm glad that we are sort of demystifying the process a little bit, and hopefully that will help make some risk-informed decisions. Absolutely. And and I do also want to mention, if folks are hearing this and are relatively new to hypnosis and would like to learn more about it, um, Panda and I now have a video home study version of our Hypno Kink 101 class. Uh, Because basically what happened was people were asking us to teach it online so often that we kind of got tired of doing it because as much as we love teaching, that particular class is a lot of information that we feel like we need to deliver. In, it's like hours, right? It's, yeah. Hours. So the vi- the video version of the class, the main lessons, it's 13 lessons that add up to about five hours. And then there's another over two hours of bonus material that comes with it. But when we do it live, we know people aren't going to sit through a whole day of an online class. So we try to do it in three hours, which is this crazy, like, how do we answer everybody's questions and tell them what we feel like is important for them to know 
and not run out of time. Um, and so we decided to put it on video so that then people can do it at their own pace. Uh, and we've had a, a really wonderful response to it. And if folks are interested, um, it's available on a sliding scale, $35 to $80. Um, and you can get it at www.pandastory, P-A-N-D-A-S-T-O-R-Y, dot love. So again, it's dot love. It's not dot com or dot net or dot org. It's pandastory dot love. And I can personally vouch for this class. I, you know, I learned how to hypno from Panda and hypno story. And I have also, you know, been at a lot of events where we've supported each other in each other's classes. So I've actually seen both the live version of their Hypno 101 and also purchased and um, flipped through their digital version. Both are excellent. So if you're really curious and you would like to learn from a quality source, I can say, I know I'm a little bit biased, but <laughs> um, it is it is really excellent quality. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's something we developed over a long time with a lot of feedback, mm -hmm. just as we did it over and over again. And so uh, I felt like it had sort of gotten to a point where it was honed enough that that recording it made sense. Yeah. And, um, and we've had, uh, as I say, a wonderful response. Quite a few people have, uh, have bought it and are learning from it. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's really, uh, that's really excellent. So, and it is sort of in bite-sized pieces. Like I said, it's, we break it down into in the main course is 13 lessons and they have, uh, real professional human closed captions and transcripts. So for people who reading it is better than listening to it, that's also available. Excellent. Well, thank you as always for having this talk with me and also for providing some resources for folks who are just getting started with hypnosis. And I can't wait to have you back again. Yeah, I can't wait to do more. Yay. Thanks as always for listening to Naughty Talk. Our show is available on most popular podcast platforms. For updates, to submit a request to be a guest on the show, to write in with questions for our hosts or request lifestyle advice, head over to the show's page at sunnyleemain.com. You'll also find information about my novels, including my Turn the Key series, which are dark erotica with themes of hypnosis, BDSM, and sometimes a little bit of magic. All books feature different kinks and are queer inclusive. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you join us again next time.